Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the 2020 third quarter conference call. Instructions for submitting questions will be provided to you later in the call. I would now like to turn the call over to Mr. Rob Wildeboer. Please go ahead, sir. Good afternoon or evening, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. We always look forward to talking with our shareholders and we hope to inform you well and answer questions. We also note that we have many other stakeholders, including many employees on the call, and our remarks are addressed to them as well as we disseminate our third quarter results and commentary through our network. With me are Pat DeRamo, Martin Reyes CEO and President, and our Chief Financial Officer, Fred Tosto. Today, we will be discussing Martin Reyes' results for the quarter ended September 30, 2020. I'm going to start with some brief remarks and some macro commentary on the market. After my opening remarks, Pat will take you through some highlights and give you his perspective. Fred will review the financial results. I will make some further comments and then we'll open the call for questions and we will endeavor to answer them. Our press release with key financial information discussed on a fairly detailed basis has been released. Our MD&A and financials have been filed on CDAR and should be available. These reports provide a detailed overview of our company, our operations and strategy, and our industry and the risks we face. We are very open to discussing in our remarks and we hope in the Q&A some highlights of the quarter, the state of the industry today, how we are addressing the challenges, anything about COVID-19 and related issues, U.S. election results and progress in our operations. As always, we want you to see how we see the world. As for a usual disclaimer, I refer you to the disclaimers in our press release and filed documents, our public record, which includes an annual information form and MD&A of operating results, is available on CDAR, and you may look at the full disclosure record of the company there. So, a few general thoughts. First, this is a newly adopted format for us, a conference call webcast. One thing we intend to do on each call is focus on a special topic of interest to us and our stakeholders. It may be a technology or a strategy or a special aspect of our business. On this call, Pat and I are going to comment on our graphene initiative, how we are using this remarkable material and our investment in it. We hope you enjoy it. Second, a general industry comment. We are all observers of COVID-19 the health issues, the economic hardships, the restart or rebound of our economy, the U.S. election results, and so forth. We have experienced some challenging times, just as we saw and experienced with 9-11 and with the 2008-9 recession. As I said on our previous calls, from an auto industry perspective, there's really three phases to dealing with the pandemic. First, the shutdown phase, which we now seem to be past for the most part. Second is the restart phase, which we have seen and has gone pretty well for us, as Pat and Fred will talk to. This has been challenging for the industry, but we have worked hard to launch as smoothly as possible by working on and implementing protocols to keep our people safe and actually ramping up successfully. The third phase has been to rebuild and then meet demand. And here the news has been quite good for us, so far in the context of U.S. sales rates, or typically stated U.S. SAR. There are other metrics we can use for North America, such as overall production or North American sales, but U.S. SAR is probably the most used proxy and generally the most easily accessible number. As you can see, after a huge downward spike in March and April of this year, there has been a pretty steep resurgence in sales and demand. In September, we had U.S. SAR above 16 million vehicles, and October was also above that level. We are at a rate fairly close to last year. 
To put this sense of normalcy into a longer-term perspective, going back 15 years, sales levels have been 16 million even back then. And we could go back to the beginning of the century. A second observation is that inventory levels, especially of the vehicles that are hot sellers, remain relatively low. And we are not catching up that quickly. A rough estimate for us all to consider that with a 17 million or so production rate in North America, we lost about 3 million vehicles of production in our industry shutdown period. It's not that easy for us to build up inventory when the U.S. SAR is running at current levels. The story in China is also good in terms of rebound. The story in Europe is more mixed with rising cases, reintroduction of some lockdown measures, although factories and schools remain open for the most part. Pat and Fred will give the Martin Ray a perspective in a moment. I have a couple of quotes from Jimmy Pattison. One says, We've never seen business better in the car business than right now. The other says, People want to be sure they feel safe, and a lot of people feel safer in their own car than they do on the bus or the train. I want to provide some context. Jimmy is a legendary Canadian businessman. As many of you know, he started in business with a car dealership, and he was very successful there, as in many businesses. I like Jimmy a lot. I've had the pleasure of serving with Jimmy on the Economic Advisory Council, advising former Finance Minister Jim Flaherty for years. And he had some of the most insightful perspectives that I've run across. When he says that it's time to buy car dealerships because people are buying cars, I take note. The trend he is referring to here is that many are looking to the vehicle differently these days, as a safe mode of transport, for one thing, but also as a place to be free, I would submit, to be free from wearing a mask in transport, to be free from the restrictions we face in public on a bus or a train or even a plane. People don't like wearing masks. We're not made that way. The trend is that vehicle sales are robust and are very likely to be robust for a long time. We have customers telling us they don't have enough product on dealership lots and they are bullish about long-term demand. The fact is we are in a growth industry here in 2020. There may be hiccups, but I am optimistic. There are many prognosticators out there in terms of sales and production volumes, including IHS, Wards, and many others. A lot have been off in their predictions. I'm going to go with Jimmy. And with that little glimpse at the macro picture, here's Pat. Thanks, Rob. Good afternoon, everyone. As noted in our press release, our positive back-to-work story continues with Q3 net earnings per share coming in at 57 cents, ahead of the range we discussed in our Q2 call of 40 to 50 cents. Q3 2020 adjusted EPS performance represents a third quarter record for the company. Our operating income margin came in at 7.8% for the third quarter. That includes the acquired Martin Rea Metalsa Group, up from 7.1% in Q3 of last year. Production sales came in at 933 million, also inclusive of our Martin Rea Metalsa Group at the high end of our guidance range of 850 to 950 million. Excluding the acquired assets from Atalsa, operating income margins for the quarter would have exceeded 9%, driven by our North American segment. We were able to produce these strong results on some high volume and mixed despite COVID. As you're aware, COVID completely shut down our industry for essentially two months in Q2 without any sales except for our industrial business which includes our off-highway products and ventilator stand revenue. As you can tell, automotive production has recovered from the COVID shutdowns more quickly than previously expected. And we see this momentum continuing into the fourth quarter. Our current forecast for Q4 calls for production sales in the range of 900 to $1 billion, with the midpoint similar to what we saw in Q3 and adjusted EPS in the range of 46 to 54 cents. In North America, it's clear that the OEMs are pushing to make up lost volume the remainder of the year. Vehicle inventories remain low, especially related to trucks, SUVs, and CUVs, where we are heavily weighted in North America. It's also clear that Europe overall is recovering at a slower pace, while volumes in China continue to be quite robust. 
As discussed previously, a number of programs were delayed by our customers due to the Q2 COVID shutdowns. This is across multiple customers and some large programs. These delays will affect some sales and margin enhancements in 2021. The three to six month delays will have some effect on our launch costs at the beginning of the upcoming year, but will normalize in the back half as the programs progress toward our original planning. Notwithstanding, our overall operational improvements and program launches continue to go well. Of course, like many in our industry, the higher volumes are stretching plant resources given the continued COVID fears. Despite this, we have been able to maintain and satisfy a high customer demand. In addition, we've continued to improve our safety performance in our facilities, including protecting the masses with our additional safety protocols for COVID-19. Impressive overall work for the Martin Rea team. You will recall our margin targets have two key components, sales of new higher margin products and continued operational improvements. For 2021, this includes operational improvements and lean activity we are instituting for our newly acquired Martin Ray and Metelsa Group. Our integration activity in this group is going well. We were slowed in one of the six plants, specifically Germany, by COVID, but have since been able to get some additional resources there and start to get the work back on track. Plant activities at other Metelsa locations are progressing as expected. We are particularly pleased with our preparation work, including new equipment installation being done at the Tuscaloosa facility. Recall this facility had open space when we purchased it. We had won a significant amount of work for the Daimler EVA 2 electric vehicle platform just prior to the acquisition. The acquisition allowed us to avoid building a new facility and saved us significant expenses in having to build and staff an all-new plant. The previously established facility and leadership team has saved both time and money. Aside from providing capacity in needed areas, there were several other strategic reasons we acquired the Metalsa assets. The acquisition helped us to diversify our customer base, adding significant revenues with Daimler and BMW, and transformed our steel metal forming group from a North American player into a global player. It also enhanced our engineering capabilities in the heart of Germany, allowing us to better support our customers not only in Europe, but also in North America. Perhaps most importantly, the acquisition enhances our lightweight multi-material joining capabilities, which forms the core of our lightweight structures commercial strategy. To summarize, our view of Metalsa has not changed and we remain excited about the prospects of this business as we look forward. Quoting activity also continues to increase as volumes normalize. I'm happy to announce new business wins totaling $70 million in annualized sales since our last call, including $45 million in propulsion systems for FCA and General Motors, $10 million in lightweight structures for General Motors, and $15 million in our industrial group to produce a battery box for Volvo's top-selling heavy-duty truck platform. Our industrial business is seeing the highest level of quoting activity since my time at Martin Rea, and we see many opportunities to grow this business. We also expect to see our first fluid product with graphene in production in 2021, a graphene-enhanced brake line for one of our current OEM customers. Our customer has tested and approved the product and is working with us to convert current production from standard brake lines to the more durable graphene-enhanced line. This improves safety as well because the entire line is protected with graphene as opposed to padding targeted areas with protective material where brake lines can rub against or be exposed to road elements such as gravel. Aside from greater abrasion protection, our graphene enhanced brake line offers the benefits of improved chemical resistance, improved performance under high temperatures, and not to mention a 25% weight reduction versus standard brake lines. The technology is patent protected, and we are able to produce these brake lines using current manufacturing equipment and processes, which minimizes investment. As a reminder, at Martin Rea, we are big proponents of graphene and its development. Graphene is proportionally stronger than steel, is very lightweight, is flexible, and has better conductivity than copper. Transmits heat well and is impermeable qualities and is very durable given the corrosion, abrasion, 
and UV resistance properties. There are many existing and potential applications for graphene across a wide variety of end markets, including automotive, transportation, industrial, agricultural, and paint, as well as green technologies for electric vehicles, renewable energy, and recycled plastics, surely a material that will help better the planet. We are excited about the technology and the potential opportunities that graphene provides, and we intend to capitalize on these opportunities through our investment in Nano Explore. It's been quite a year so far with the Q2 COVID shutdowns to surging volumes in North America that match some of the highest volumes we've ever seen. Demand is expected to remain strong through the remainder of the year. The restart has gone as smoothly as we could have expected. Our safety protocols have been effective and our team members have done a tremendous job ramping up production and meeting the aggressive volume requirements. A lot of hard work for the Martin Rea people as the team continues to impress. Many thanks and appreciation for your commitment to our great organization. And with that, I'll pass it to Fred. Thanks, Pat, and good afternoon. I hope everyone is doing well and staying healthy. As Pat already noted, Q3 was a very good quarter for us in the context of the current environment. On the last call, we indicated that we have likely seen the bottom from a production volume standpoint and the Q3 results certainly support this. To be able to post year-over-year growth in operating income, earnings per share, and free cash flow in the middle of a pandemic is an achievement we are all very proud of. Our operations are now at or near pre-COVID activity levels in North America and China, and ramping up in Europe, albeit more gradually. As Pat noted, our team has done a remarkable job in managing the operations and meeting customer requirements during the restart we thank them for their tireless efforts and dedication during these challenging times. Taking a closer look at the results, total sales in Q3 were essentially flat year over year and down 11%, excluding $105 million of sales from our recently acquired assets from Matalsa, due largely to overall lower year over year tooling sales. Production sales were up 10%, while tooling sales were down 70%, as it generated higher than normal tooling sales in Q3 of last year, which did not repeat this year, due in part to some new program delays. Recall that Q3 2019 results were impacted by the UAW GM strike, which resulted in approximately $20 million in lost production sales during that quarter. Q3 volumes posted a sharp recovery from the rock bottom levels hit in Q2. Clearly, the automotive industry is bouncing back more quickly than many expected only a few short months ago. As Rob and Pat touched upon, vehicle sales have been robust and inventory levels remain low in North America, particularly on truck, SUV, and CUV platforms, where we are more heavily weighted. This bodes well for future sales. Our adjusted operating income was $75.5 million, representing a 7.8% margin, a significant improvement from the loss experience in Q2 and better than the year-ago performance. As Pat already indicated, excluding the operations of our new Martin Ray Matulsa Group, which had an operating loss of $3.3 million during the quarter and $105 million of sales, operating income margin would have exceeded 9% a very strong result. Margins were driven by strength in North America, reflective of volume and a positive sales mix, reduced operating costs, lower tooling sales on which we generally earn little to no margin, and a $6.6 million benefit from the Canadian Employment Wage Subsidy Program, which we expect to be lower in Q4. In terms of Europe, as noted earlier, their overall volume recovery there has been slower, which is weighing on margins in that segment of our business. In addition, our operating margin in Europe continues to be negatively impacted by the inclusion of the new German operations acquired from Matalsa. Pat has already addressed our plans and outlook for the acquired Matalsa business. Some logistical challenges put us behind schedule with the integration of the German plant, but these are now largely behind us and we continue to feel very good about the acquisition and its prospects for the future. 
As a matter of fact, we just completed our annual business planning and budget process, and based on the current and anticipated volume environment, we expect the newly acquired Martin Ray Matalsa Group to deliver a break-even operating result next year, approach our original $30 million of EBITDA targeted level in 2022, and exceed that original target by 2023, inclusive of the new work we won with Daimler on its EBITDA 2 platform, which, as Pat noted, we will be launching on our new Tuscaloosa facility starting in 2022. Moving on to earnings quickly. Q3 earnings per share was a solid 57 cents, as Pat noted, a record for Q3, driven by our strong margin performance. We did not incur any further restructuring costs in Q3, and we do not currently expect any further such costs during the remainder of 2020, though we will react to the market as required. We expect the strong earnings performance to continue into Q4 per guidance and as Pat outlined earlier. Free cash flow, as defined in our MDNA for Q3 2020, was $102.5 million, inclusive of $72.3 million in cash capex and a $63.7 million cash inflow from working capital. A portion of the working capital benefit is timing related and will likely normalize during the next couple quarters. Notwithstanding, our free cash flow performance for the quarter is very strong, as production volume is recovered. The team has done an excellent job managing cash over the last number of months. Given the strong Q3 performance and our positive outlook for Q4, we believe we are on track to deliver on our expectation of break-even free cash flow in 2020, if not exceeded. Due largely to the free cash flow generation during the quarter, we managed to reduce net debt, excluding the impact of IFRS 16, by over $100 million compared to Q2 levels, which resulted in a net debt to adjusted EBITDA ratio at the end of the third quarter of 2.21 times and approximately 1.7 times for bank covenant purposes, reflecting our amended credit agreement, allowing us to exclude Q2 2020 EBITDA from the calculation. Our leverage ratio remains within our comfort range and well below our bank covenant maximum level of three times. At the end of the third quarter, we were essentially back to pre-COVID 2019 net debt levels, and we funded an acquisition during that time. A very good results from all accounts and reflective of the strength of the business. Turning to capital allocation, we believe that our strong balance sheet entering the COVID-related downturn and our swift action to cut costs, preserve cash, and protect the balance sheet enable us to successfully navigate our way through the crisis, positioning us well to take advantage of opportunities as the recovery takes shape, be the opportunities for takeover business or potential acquisitions. Of course, we will be prudent in allocating capital and our commitment to maintain a strong balance sheet remains a top priority. While maintaining a strong balance sheet, we will seek opportunities to invest in our business, be it organically, or through acquisitions where they make strategic and financial sense. We will also continue to seek to return capital to shareholders through dividend growth over time, as well as opportunistic share repurchases. Overall, we are very pleased with our performance in the third quarter. We believe the worst of the COVID-driven downturn is largely in the rearview mirror at this point, barring an industry shutdown from a second or subsequent wave of COVID, which we believe is highly unlikely. We look forward to the future, starting with a strong fourth quarter, as our Q4 sales and earnings guidance indicates. Thank you for your attention this afternoon. With that, and I'll turn it back over to Rob. Thanks, Fred. Pat talked to you about graphene and our product focus there. I'm going to say a few words about Nano Explorer and our approach to technology, investing, R&D, product development, and M&A. Nano Explorer is not just a passive investment for us. It's been a very good investment so far, but there are many more aspects to this. We looked at graphene as it fits with our technology focus and lightweighting strategy. We are world leaders in lightweighting with aluminum and various steels, as you know, and we intend to be the best lightweighting company on the planet, 
using these materials and perhaps others. Graphene is strong, it's light, and it has all the features Pat talked about, and it has a great future, we believe. Our initial investment in Nano was made in essence to secure a graphene source and to get our feet wet, so to speak. We entered into a supply agreement where we could work with the material for our product lines and made a small investment. Then, while we were working in the early stages with graphene, it became clear that Nano could produce graphene in commercial quantities at reasonable cost. I won't get into all the details. Nano is a public company on the TSX Venture Exchange, symbol GRA. And you can read all about the company on its website or in its public documents. Its AGM is November 25 in two weeks. We came to the view with Nano Explorer CEO Sarush Nazarpur and the company that in order to take advantage of the graphene opportunity, the company had to be able to produce larger quantities of graphene, namely commercial amounts. As a result, Nano planned to build a commercial production plant with capacity to produce 4,000 tons annually and an ability to scale up from there. The reality is this. Large customers are going to buy large quantities. They don't buy materials by the barrel. Nano raised the money for this plant in a share offering, and we were the lead investor. Now Nano had the ability to proceed to build its plant. One thing we know how to do extremely well in Martin Rea is to build and scale up plants. We are masters at it. And so we contributed our expertise. Rocco Marinaccio, the head of our flexible manufacturing unit, which includes our industrial division, went to Nano Explorer as its COO. I joined the Nano board as chair. Our lean team, HR people, and some others all worked with Sarush and the Nano Explorer people to develop the company including its non-graphene manufacturing operations. Pat, Fred, and our product development and sales team remain available and are involved in our investment. And along with this investment, we secured exclusivity agreements for graphene on products in our line of business. Although I personally believe the real opportunity for Nano Explorer and graphene generally are in areas that are not necessarily automotive. By the way, the graphene plant has been recently completed is now operational, basically on time and below budget. A great achievement and the Nano team is to be congratulated. When Nano's largest investor sold its block, we bought a piece and became Nano Explorer's largest investor with an approximate 24% ownership level. Other large investors in Nano Explorer include Fidelity Investments, IQ or Investment Quebec, Tested Depot, and BDC, as well as Sarouche. A pretty solid group of financial backing. Together, we own most of the shares. Earlier this year, in April, Nano completed and com contemplated and completed a share offering to ensure it had cash for the next couple of years, and we invested our pro rata portion. So that's how we came to have this ownership interest. But let me frame it for you as to how we see the world, something I always say in the introduction to our calls. This is very much a strategic investment for us, related to our lightweighting focus. This is very much a kind of R&D investment or a technology investment. There are many who believe parts of automotive are not technologically driven unless you're in electric or autonomous products. Nothing could be further from the truth. Lightweighting is one of the leading technology growth areas of this industry or any industry where things move. And graphene is a good aspect of that. And of course, graphene's capabilities go beyond lightweighting, like for example, conductivity. Our company does a ton of innovation. Our focus on process improvement, which is constant, is process innovation. This type of activity is innovation at its best. Further, this investment is a form of M&A, not necessarily in the traditional sense of buying companies, which we've done, but to get a key position in a company that we can help to drive growth. And, in my view at least, by not owning the company 100%, we leave it free to really take advantage of all opportunities and not be bound by our current focus, which is primarily automotive. As an aside, Pat talked to you about Matalsa, which is a form of M&A transaction, but really for us, that was in essence the broadening of our presence by getting six plants in new locations and by getting access to, among other things, some cool technology. It was cheaper to buy than build. We invest in and develop leading-edge technology. We make things, 
We make new things, and we make things better. That's the core of innovation. Interestingly, on that score, our people have shown that when tasked, we can build anything really well and really efficiently, as demonstrated by our success in making ventilator stands and masks. Fred talked about capital allocation. We always say we invest in our business first while maintaining a strong balance sheet. And we will consider M&A, of course, but really, with Metalsa and Nano, we are really investing in our business. Let me summarize the cost of our Nano Explorer investment and where the valuation sits as of last week. Total invested $37.5 million. Value today, $90 million or so. That's pretty good. We recognize stock price and valuation change day to day, but we think we've invested well. By the way, I would argue the value of this investment is not being reflected in our stock price, and frankly, I doubt the prospects are either. I would think that will change over time. So let me make a few remarks on our people and culture for the benefit of our stakeholders. From a macro perspective, our industry has endured the longest shutdown in its history, and everyone has been affected. Our team has responded well, not only in improving our company for the long term, but in our dedication to developing and implementing leading safety protocols and in contributing to the fight against COVID-19 by building ventilator stands and PPE such as masks for our people and people in our communities. Just as with the great financial crisis of 2008 and 9, we are already a stronger and more competitive company going forward coming out of the crisis. It's in times like these that our focus on culture and our vision of making people's lives better by being the best we can be in the products we make and the services we provide comes through for us. This is why, in our company, we consistently talk about vision, mission, guiding principles, and culture. Our people do, and hold us accountable to them. To our lenders, this is who you are lending to. To our customers, this is who produces for you. To our communities, this is how we will care for you. To our investors, we believe this culture will drive a great, sustainable business for you to invest in. To all of our stakeholders, we treat you the way we want to be treated and with dignity and respect. We want to thank our dedicated employees for their great service, as well as our shareholders, lenders, suppliers, customers, and governments for their hard work and support. Finally, I want to do a shout-out for our industry and some great things happening in Canada and Ontario that are to the benefit of all of us. The Canadian auto industry has had a great several weeks. We have had close to $5 billion in OEM announcements, including from Ford, re-electric vehicles in Oakville, FCA, re-expansion in Windsor and elsewhere, and GM in reopening Oshawa to produce its best-selling truck and investing in its other plants in Ontario. Probably the highest level of investments announced in our industry in Canada in over a decade. Further, the province of Ontario announced some very positive measures for our industry and manufacturing in general in its budget, cutting energy costs and other business-related taxes, all to make us more competitive and to encourage investment. Both the federal government and the province have also provided financial support to our industry, and it will be well rewarded with the benefits of new jobs and all the tax revenues that will be generated directly and indirectly. Our studies show OEM investment payback is under three years. Both as Martin Ray Executive Chair and as Co-Chair of CAPSI, or the Canadian Automotive Partnership Council, thanks and congratulations to our customers, our governments, Flavio Volpe of APMA and Jerry Dias of Unifor for some really good work. As my colleague Flavio Volpe has stated publicly, and as I have stated publicly, this is possible in large part because of the great work done on the Canada-U.S.-Mexico Free Trade Agreement by Minister Freeland and the team working together with us and with our industry. This is good news for all Canadian auto suppliers, including us. There is work to win here, which will happen, and our Canadian base is solidified. Really good news. We can keep our plants full and maybe add some work and new jobs. Now it's time for questions. We see we have shareholders, analysts, and competitors on the phone. We may, we may have to be a little careful with our answers, but we will answer what we can. Thank you all for calling. 
Thank you. We will now take questions from the telephone lines. If you have a question and you're using a speakerphone, please lift your handset before making your selection. If you have a question, please press star 1 on your device's keypad. If at any time you wish to cancel your question, please press the pound sign. Please press star 1 at this time if you have a question. There will be a brief pause while participants register for questions. Thank you for your patience. And the first question is from Mark Neville from Scotiabank. Please go ahead. Your line is now open. Hi, good evening, guys. Uh, good quarter and uh, good quarter. Good job on the restart. Um, Thank you. Maybe just the first question on the Tulsa. Um, Three and a half million dollar operating loss. I'm just curious. That's sort of roughly what you had plans for the quarter. And this is a second question. Um, break even next year, 30 million EBITDA in 2022, I think is what you said. Um, obviously, it's the big ramp. Can you maybe just um, an idea of sort of when um, it, it becomes profitable? I just I don't imagine it just you flip the switch in 2022 and it's <laughs> you're generating 30 million. So just a better idea of the cadence, just just for modeling purposes. Yeah. yeah. So, so the the third quarter came in uh, as expected for the, the Martin Ray Matalsa group. So, no surprises there, and uh, we're expecting a similar quarter in the fourth uh, fourth quarter as well. Um, and heading into next year, um, so you are correct. So, we're we're targeting break even next year uh, for 22. We'll we'll approach a 30 million dollar EBITDA, so we'll get pretty close, and then 23 will exceed it. That's what our current plans are showing. Uh, we have a roadmap in place. Uh, the uh, the bulk of the work um, required is going to be in our German plants, so we're really focused on that. And uh, coming out of the, the COVID shutdowns, uh, we've been able to turn our attention to that and get people back on on, on the ground there. So we're making progress there, and uh, uh, I envision it to work out kind of like a um, you know gradual pace uh, over the course of 21. Um, um, so you know I, I can't get any more concrete than that, but uh, the roadmap is there, and, and we'll continue to work on it quarter to quarter. And expectations will just continue to get better. Sure, no, that, that, that's helpful. I can sort of draw draw a line from there. Um, maybe on the, the, subs, uh, the subsidies, just want to clarify. Sorry, the the price you said six and a half million um, in a quarter. Was that uh, the, a total amount, or was that just Canada? I don't know. I thought there might have been something else too. Yeah, so the, the total for the quarter is uh, uh, just over $9 million. Um, $3 million of that um, relates to inactive employees. So those employees are still on layoffs, predominantly in Germany. So uh, the, uh, the subsidy received is essentially the pass-through to cover the, the, the cost of, the, of those in, in individuals that are inactive and, and on layoff. Uh, the $6.6 million essentially is uh, the Canadian subsidy. And uh, given where volumes were and, and the fact that we didn't have anybody on a layoff during the quarter, that was essentially a direct benefit. Um, so that, that was the net benefit for us for, uh, for Q3. Okay, got it. Got it. Thanks. Um, maybe just one last one before I get back into the queue. Um, again, obviously, a good job here on the cost front. Um, again, obviously, it's been a focus for a while. But uh, I'm just curious, um, you know, as you think about volumes ramping or continuing to ramp, um, and sort of the, the structural or the permanent cost versus what comes back. Um, sort of any way to frame that for us. Again, I don't know if there's a big structural uh, savings, um, but any any sort of color would be helpful. Thanks. Yeah, we, we talked a bit about that on the last call. Uh, obviously, we've uh, um, right-sized our workforce, um, and we took the, uh, the COVID uh, uh, shutdowns as an opportunity to do so, and, and we've, we've come up pretty strong. So there, there's some permanent reductions there. Um, you know, we were saying there was about a uh, 7% reduction in our workforce. Uh, some of that's going to be volume related, so some of it's going to have to come back. So, you know, structurally, uh, anywhere from 20 to $30 million of savings annually uh, is what I'm pegging. Uh, we're still working on a few things, but heading into next year, uh, that's kind of how we envision the permanent reduction in cost. Yeah, no, thanks for that. That's a good color. Again, good job, and I'll get back to you. Thank you. The next question is from Kevin Chang from CIBC. Please go ahead. Hi. Uh, <clears throat> thanks, thanks for taking my question and just echoing Mark's, uh, Mark's comments. Good quarter there. Um, maybe just looking at your your uh, cash flow generation over the, 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 the first nine months of the quarter, your cash flow from ops are, are basically 100% or just over 100% of your, your EBITDA. So, 
to a good conversion rate. I know you spoke to some working capital moves as, as we get through the remainder of the year, but you know, when you when you look at what you've done year to day, just wondering how you think about the ability to convert you know a higher level of EBITDA into cash flow, uh, you know, into 2021 and 2022. You know, as you ramp up here, just given the performance you've seen year to date. Yeah, so we obviously uh, had a nice tailwind on working capital this quarter. I noted in my opening remarks that uh, some of that will normalize in the next couple quarters. Um, so we managed that that quite well. Um, we also managed capex uh, well, well as well. So you know, Q2 obviously we're you know uh, at a pretty low level. Some of that's come back just based on the fact that we're you know refocused on some of our launches. So some of that cost is coming through, and, and we'll see some of that going forward. I, I feel pretty good about our, our ability to uh, capitalize on that and, and convert. Um, you know, so we're going to probably land the year on capex about 260 to 270 million dollars. Um, and uh, that's uh, about 20% lower than where we thought we'd be pre-COVID uh, in 2020. And then heading into 21, some of that, you know, is delays and deferrals. So we're going to see some of that come through. But uh, where we sit right now, actually, and, and, I, and I noted we, we just completed our annual budget and business planning process. I feel pretty good about our ability to actually keep that flat next year uh, from a CapEx perspective year over year. So if you're able to do that, and uh, expecting obviously sales to be much better next year, uh, we should be able to have a, a decent year of free cash flow uh, in 21. No, that's a, that's a great color. And and just on the Metalsa, I don't know if there's a way to, to to think about it, a way to quantify this, but you you, you spent U.S. 19.5 million dollars of members. There's me correct on, on the acquisition, but but as you noted, it, it came with a bunch of capacity that you would have had to invest in yourself if, if you hadn't made the acquisition. Just try, try to get a sense of if the Metalfa acquisition wasn't made, what, what the capex would have been, um, you know, for you to build a plant in Alabama, for example, and, and, and staff that plant. I don't, I'm not sure about the. Yeah, I mean, obviously, greenfields are difficult, um, and, and it's not even the, the cost of the, the capacity and equipment. It's, it's building up the right. workforce that's, and that's, all the startup costs. I mean, I think we saved all that, and in uh, and, and our historical experience, and that could be quite substantial. And southern U.S., especially with all the growth in manufacturing, uh, it's, it's extremely difficult to get a, a talented and technical workforce in place. So the building itself, you know, I'd be guessing to tell you how much the building and the property would be. The equipment, of course, is equipment that's all new um, as part of the program. But the management team and the workforce are absolutely the, uh, the gem in, in the whole thing. Okay, that, that, that's helpful. And, and maybe just lastly for me, you know, I found all the graphene um, commentary very helpful. And, and, you know, you spoke in one of your slides about, uh, I guess it's graphene and nylon coated brake lines. And, and it looks like you've, um, you, you've won uh, or you'll be supplied by 20 of the largest customers. Do you think, you know, this recent win uh, pushes through a glass ceiling? Um, in terms of the adoption of graphene within the automotive industry, you know, uh, you know, one of your competitors has talked about just in general that, you know, the adoption of new technology sometimes the hardest thing is, is, is getting that customer, customer adoption, and once you have that, it, it, it kind of accelerates from there. Is, is that the feeling you have given given uh, the new contract went for 2021? Yeah, the the graphene in the brake lines is is just scratching the surface of its potential. Um, you know, one of the easiest places to add graphene is in is in polymers and paint, which a substantial amount of a vehicle. Oh, and the tires as well. But the substantial amount of the vehicle is is plastic, uh, paint, and, and uh, of course rubber. So the the amount uh, future volume, I should say, of this product is almost immeasurable right now, in my view. Um, you know, one of the inhibitors of getting started is, especially in the automotive arena, is testing is, is key. And it took us some time to test and qualify the brake lines because automotive is very careful uh, when they add new material. Um, so that, that takes a little time, of course. And then making sure that there is a supply line that they can rely on, um, which in the past, graphene, there hasn't been high-volume a high volume producer. Now with nano, there is a high volume producer. So uh, once it gets rolling, I think uh, you know some years from now, when we're talking about this, we'll be at an awful lot of graphene 
in vehicles from many suppliers. That, that's, uh, that's great color there. That's it for me. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. The next question is from Michael Glenn from Raymond James. Please go ahead. Hey, uh, good evening. Um, can you maybe, uh, thanks for the information on Metalsa. Can you maybe talk about next year, Europe as a whole, um, which, what we should think about from that business um, from an operating margin perspective? Yeah, so I mean, we're we're dealing with a couple headwinds from a Europe segment perspective. Uh, talked about it earlier. Um, you know, the volumes are recovering at a slower pace there. Um, actually, pre-COVID, we were dealing with some headwinds in Europe, and uh, those are somewhat continuing. So, we expect the recovery to continue to be gradual um, over the course of the rest of this year as well as, as next year. Um, so, as the volumes start coming back, obviously our margins will improve with it. Uh, and then the other big piece to it is is the German plant that came in with Tulsa. Obviously, that's negative in the moment. Um, it resulted in a negative margin for uh, uh, for the third quarter, um, and uh, we expect that to improve over the course of the next number of quarters as we execute on our integration uh, plans um, for which we have a roadmap at the current time. So expect that to uh, continue to progress uh, and turn positive. And, uh, you know, over the next two to three years, no reason why uh, our segment, um, uh, European segment, can't get back to pre-COVID type marginal levels. Um, so, uh, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll, it'll depend on volumes and, and obviously uh, the integration uh, is also a key aspect to it. So, so the number you gave was that Metelsa had, had a negative 3.3 million. Um, I, I don't know if that was... For the, for the group, for the entire, for the, all, all the plants. Oh, for the entire group. Okay. Yeah. Um, and the European loss was that. Was what? How did Europe do ex Metalsa? Uh, what I'll say there is, is ex Metalsa, the margin would have been positive. Okay. Uh, okay. And then, just on on the working cap on the on the free cash flow, um, so. Should we be you're like you're, you're talking about neutral free cash for the year, but you, you look to be positive. If I'm doing the calculation right, you are positive free cash for um, for year to date. So, is there something? Do you think that free cash flow would revert back to negative in Q4? Um, well, the, the the working capital, as I noted, is expected to normalize in the next couple of quarters. Um, so. Um, I feel good about our, our ability to meet our target, which is break-even, and, and uh, where I sit right now, I feel like we can exceed that. Um, but uh, the working capital will likely uh, be a bit of a headwind uh, heading into the year-end um, and potentially Q1 as well. Okay. And then when you look at the balance sheet in terms of getting the buyback uh, in place again, what, when do you think timing for that makes sense? We just had our uh, board meetings today. We'll probably uh, address our thinking in, in the next quarter. Uh, I think it's uh, prudent for us to uh, to not make that announcement here. Uh, we just went through our budget process. Things look you know really good going forward, which is why I talked about the uh, Jimmy Pattison view of the world. Um, it's certainly something that's uh, one aspect of our capital allocation strategy. Um, but it'll be on the uh, it'll be on the uh, board list for consideration um, in uh, March, I guess. Okay. Uh, okay. Thanks for taking the questions. You're welcome. Thank you. The next question is from Brian Morrison from TD Securities. Please go ahead. Thanks very much. Two questions, guys, if I can. Uh, one maybe um, housekeeping, and the other maybe philosophical. But um, in terms of your tooling revenue outlook for 2021. Fred, I think we were looking at maybe half of what it was in 2019. Is that a, a good assumption? I realize it's volatile from year to year. Yeah. Um, it's probably going to be a little bit higher than that, just given the fact that some of these delays, some of it's going to uh, you know, get, get pushed off from 20 to 21. Uh, so it's probably going to be on uh, a little higher than that. Probably not as high as 19. 19 was an unusually high year. Uh, but uh, your, your estimation there is probably a bit on the low side. Okay, somewhere in the middle makes sense then. Yeah. 
Okay. And then I guess if, this is probably a question for Rob. So I, I see your accept, your excitement with growth with respect to Nano Explorer, and I, and I don't necessarily disagree with it, but I just want to play devil's advocate for a second here. You're currently trading at four times EBITDA. If you exclude Nano Explorer, you're probably three and a half to three, three and three quarter kind of forward EBITDA. So just in terms of extracting shareholder value, I'm, I'm just curious on your thoughts whether it might be more advantageous here to sign a strategic long-term supply agreement and monetize your position, or maybe tell us how you, how you think this could get reflected in the share price. It seems to hit new highs every day. Well, um, sometimes new highs doesn't necessarily con- uh, continue forever, as, as, as you know. I, I think that, uh, first of all, in the first part, we're really undervalued. I think our industry is undervalued. I think the multiples will probably expand as people realize that we're kind of in a growth phase and they're seeing movement into cyclicals. Uh, certainly in the last several weeks, we've seen that. Uh, in, terms of, uh, in terms of NANA, we do have a long-term supply agreement. So, so you know, that was part of the strategic investment. As long as we maintain a level of investment in nano, we, we've got exclusivity uh, for that in our lines of business. And in terms of monetizing, uh, I wouldn't monetize yet because I think that that stock's got a lot uh, to run as, do, as does ours. So um, among other things, you know, we, we, we look at investments as well. When we buy companies or positions in companies, we take a look at it also from an investor perspective. I think we are extremely good at investing in this industry. Uh, our acquisition record has been um, better than just about anyone, and I think that uh, I think that uh, we've got we've got a long way to go. And so, back to the capital allocation question that was previous about about um, um, share repurchases and so forth. Our focus is uh, on returning shareholder value uh, to our shareholders. I'm highly confident we'll do that over the next number of years. And if the stock's too cheap, we're just going to buy a bunch of it back um, and, uh, and eventually uh, make sure that we reward our shareholders. If you take a look at the, you know, the one-year, the three-year, the five-year returns, when it comes to share price, we're, uh, we're in the top, top part of whatever group you, uh, you want to look at. I think we've got, uh, we've got a runway. And I think as we look at the meetings that we had here and, and the quality of the people that we have and some of the opportunities and the things that we're seeing, uh, we think we're extremely uh, extremely well positioned and I think we're just getting started. Right. Okay. Um, I mean, I've seen a lot of companies over the years that have had hidden value in these investments and there's no question that you're underappreciated in terms of valuation. Um, but I think until you monetize that, um, it's tough to see how that gets reflected in the share price and it, it, there's tremendous value there. Yeah. Well, I agree, but I'd rather sell at 10 bucks than at 3 Understood. Okay, we can talk about it. Thanks. All right, thanks. Thank you. Once again, please press star 1 at this time if you have a question or comment. The next question is from McMurray Will from Cormark Securities. Please go ahead. Hi, uh, good evening. Um, maybe a quarter ago, I think the concern on on – the volume increases that you were seeing was maybe filling back up the, the the supply chain. Is it simply the SAR that you're looking at to feel as confident as you as you come across about the longevity of this of the volumes you're seeing now? Is that is it as simple as that, or do you see more uh, longer term trends that 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 leave you much more confident than say three or six months ago? Well, that's a great question, and I think we we should all take a shot at at, at an aspect of it. Um, I, I actually I actually think that you know the underlying economy, first of all, in North America is doing better than the headlines would suggest. I think in in Canada we're at 87 percent of uh, capacity according to EDC. I think it's closer to 90 percent here, and people are buying homes and they're buying they're buying vehicles, so big ticket items, and I think that's. Uh, that's uh, very important. In the United States, the unemployment rate is uh, is 6.9 percent. I find that incredible, incredibly uh, good uh, compared to uh, some of the things that uh, we were anticipating. And I think the United States, at least from an economic perspective, uh, has probably called a number of things right by uh, by staying open on that. And so I think there's a lot of underlying value there. We look at a number of different things. I think North American as a region is very strong. I think the USMCA is doing 
uh, very well to support that. I think the views of international trade and reshoring manufacturing from places like China and other places in Asia is great. I think it's absolutely great for Mexico, which is a fantastic place to manufacture. I think we're seeing some of that in Ontario with the announcements that I talked about. So, so, I, so I think the fundamentals are good there. But I also think the world's changed, and 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 uh, and you know I go back to what Jimmy said, and 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 you know to a certain extent, what what we're seeing is is a re rethinking of, of certain philosophies and trends that were put out as gospel um, uh, over, over the past, uh, you know, whatever period of time. Urbanization and, you know, everyone moving in from the suburbs, I think, uh, I think there's a reversal of that trend. There still will be people downtown and so forth, but I think that a lot of people are basically saying I can work a good part of the week from home. I can, uh, I, I can effectively have a yard. I've got a certain amount of freedom. Um, but I'm still going to need a vehicle because if I drive 5,000 kilometers a year, I'm going to need a car for that. And, and I think that, you know, that supports that supports uh, automotive sales. I think that a number of people are saying, I don't really want to be uh, in mass transit. And uh, whether it's a safety issue or whether it's just a restriction issue, um, uh, you know, and so in that sense, the, the car gives you, gives you um, a certain amount of safety. You can control your environment for you and your family, anyone that might be vulnerable. I also think that, um, quite frankly, you get freedom in a vehicle. And the, and the reality is in our industry, we're building better vehicles, more fun vehicles than ever before. People like to drive. And, uh, and, and I think that trend is, is, is a very good one. Miles driven in the United States and in North America were going up until we, uh, we, we had the, uh, uh, the pandemic went down for a while. And even though miles are down, a lot of people are finding they need their vehicles. So I, I think that I think that the vehicle sales, my, my personal view, vehicle sales are going to be very good. Uh, production's uh, very good as we reshore in North America, and I think we're going to see uh, a lot of growth over, over, over the next number of years, and I think people like IHS are way too conservative. That's my view. That's great. Um, I guess I, I also had a question related on the NanoExplore side. Can you... I mean, it's a pretty modest part, right, that you've announced so far that you're you're launching. Um, can you share with us what your views on, like, I don't know, the next four or five products that you think are ripe or at least areas without, without um, you know, sort of uh, showing your hand? But can you kind of guide us to where you really think the low-hanging fruit is for you to to use more of that material? Yeah, I, I guess first I'd argue a little bit that it's not an insignificant part. Um, you know, the, the very high-level safety part in a vehicle, uh, which is one of the reasons it took quite a while to uh, to go through all the testing cycles that are necessary for brakes. Um, our next venture will be in the fuel line, which we're we're uh, down the road on with testing now. Um, similar. A similar way of producing, of course, fuel lines, nylon, and, and it's different materials. And, and when you uh, mix uh, plastics and graphene, it seems to be one of the best areas uh, where you can adopt the quickest. But again, they have to go through testing cycles and so forth. Uh, but in, in the industry as a whole, I think we are really going to start to see some volume as paint uh, and coatings, rubbers, and then of course, you know, the entire interior of a vehicle is plastic under the hood anymore, half of it's plastic. Fuel tanks are plastic in, in many cases. Um, you know, the structure of the car tends to be steel and aluminum, um, and I think that'll continue for the most part, which we're very happy about. But all the uh, the interior pieces, the, the parts of the vehicle you see, uh, graphene definitely has uh, uh, a place in the mix that, uh, that I think will bring very high volumes in the future. A lot of those are different different uh, suppliers, um, and in fact, uh, between Nano and ourselves, uh, we're certainly trying to help bridge uh, that activity to the other suppliers. So non-competitors, of course. The other the other thing that that we would say is that you know Nano has an industrial uh, group, but but the growth in graphene may be outside automotive. Um, you know, to a certain extent, a lot of people are looking at it for a lot of different things. That's why. I suggested, you know, for those that are interested, tune into the uh, AGM 
and listen to Sarusha's presentation at the AGM just to get some background. Um, these, these folks are 100% focused on graphene. They're uh, leading experts in the world on it, and they basically uh, said, and, and quite logically so, and this, this is why I said in our remarks we agree with it, um, in, order to, in order to capture a market, you've got to be able to produce at volume at reasonable cost. And, and uh, that's opposed to you know, producing in test tubes and uh, in smaller, smaller amounts. If I'm a big, if I'm a big uh, customer, I want to know that I've got uh, source of supply, as, as, as Pat said. The other thing is that you know, very often when people are looking to purchase stuff, they say, who else is buying it? And, uh, and who else is using it? And uh, uh, industries tend to be copycat when a new product is being adopted. And you know, to a certain extent, um, we may not be the big, biggest buyers or users of graphene. That's fine with us. If we're, if, if for the amount we use, you know, we're 0.1 percent of the total somewhere down the road, then uh, Nano is selling one heck of a lot of graphene. Great, thanks, guys. Thanks, and congrats on the quarter. Thanks. Thank you. There are no further questions registered at this time. I'll turn the meeting back over to Mr. Wildeboer. Thank you very much. Thanks for the questions. Thanks for spending some time on the evening. I just want to uh, end with a couple of, uh, couple of thoughts on, on some uh, individuals. The first one is, is very sad. We're dedicating our call uh, to Roman Deroniak. Uh, Roman is a longtime director, uh, head of our HRCC, and a very good friend He's been fighting cancer for some time and unfortunately passed away last weekend. So our hearts and condolences at the company and in our community go out to his wife Kathy and son Robert. Uh, Roman was a respected and loved member of the Martin Rand family who served us and the shareholders with distinction. He's been with us since 2014 and he'll certainly be missed, but we'll continue to run our board and company as we would have wished with dignity and respect to you all. And we will miss you, good friend. A second person we want to shout out or, or talk about is uh, uh, one of our directors, uh, Molly Schreikert, um just won uh, the Gerhard Hertzberg Gold Medal as Canada's top scientist. Uh, we congratulate her. She got a nice gold medal, uh, which she showed us at our director meetings today, which was great. Um, Molly uh, used to be Ontario's chief scientist for a while, but she's, uh, she's extremely uh, great person and uh, a great innovator. Um, part of the call, we talked about technology and our approach to technology and how we focus on that in our business and elsewhere. And uh, and and the fact that uh, one of our directors can win this prize shows once again our commitment uh, to to the uh, uh, technology uh, field. And then a third uh, person that we can this one we'd also like to congratulate is Megan Hunter, our EVP of Procurement and Supply Chain Ops was just awarded uh, uh, an award as a recipient of the 100 Leading Women by Automotive News, which is uh, quite an achievement. We congratulate her, and, uh, and we hope that our remarks and these people show the wonderful people that we associate with in our organization. Um, I want to thank everyone for the call. If anyone has any questions, uh, you can call any of us uh, at uh, the numbers in the press release. Have a great evening. Thank you. The conference is now ended. Please disconnect your lines at this time, and we thank you for your participation. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com.